0: Well, grit means that you believe that after 12 generations of just getting by, that the next generation is going to be the one that you really, really goes, right? Grit means that you get up every day and you go, you know, I don't know how I'm going to solve this problem, but I'm going to go out and be scrappy and I'm going to do it. Grit means that, yeah, that's a tall hill, but it's not taller than than the strength I have to get over it.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Mike, welcome to the show.
0: Delighted to be here.
1: And I wish we were on video right now because you have a cowboy hat that I would look really terrible in. I start all of these things the same way. I read my guests' backgrounds back to them. Tell me where I screw up and then we can use that as a launching pad. So you got your BS in engineering from Boise State and then University of Idaho in the early 80s. Then you went to Texas A&M. You got your MBA in finance. You then went to IBM in 87, quite the time to join that company. You've spent almost 10 years there. Then you went to Markham. You were the channel VP, and you did three years there. Tivoli, I think is how you pronounce it. You did about a year there as the director of sales. Then you were the VP of BizDev at EC Foods for two years. BEA Systems as the VP and GM of sales for three years. Then you went to VMware in 2005 which was a good time to be there. And you were the VP of sales for the Americas and APAC. You did seven years of that. And then in your final year, I think you actually became the VP of product marketing. Is that- Can you believe that? (laughs) I thought I was reading my notes wrong. And then you joined Amazon in 2013, specifically AWS. You were the VP of field ops, essentially running sales for AWS starting in 2013 you had put mildly an incredible run there. And then in September of 2020, which dates don't matter to me anymore, but I guess that's a year ago, you joined as the CRO of Stripe. And then outside of your professional career, you've also started the Clavel Foundation.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: Did I screw anything up? I mean, I'm sure I screwed something. What did I screw up?
0: No, no, that is a good summary.
1: All right. Fair enough. So here's what we're going to do. If it's okay with you, I have a few specific questions that I want to ask about your background, there are some things that struck me, and then we can dive into all the fun things that we're going to dive into. Is that cool? Excellent.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, good. Before we do, what was your first ever job?
0: I grew up on a farm, and I had to drive the pickup while my grandfather fed the cows, and I was five at the time, and I couldn't see out the front window and maneuver the pedals. So I would have to slide down to maneuver the pedals and slide back up to see how across the, then slide back down.
1: (laughs) I've heard you refer to your upbringing as a bunch of scrappy farmers. What do you mean by that?
0: Our family came over in the 1660s as an indentured servant, the first Clayville did, at age 10. And after working for the landowner that he had been contracted with after five years, he got 50 acres of land. And that was 12 generations ago. And almost every generation, we all end up with about 50 acres of land and not <laughs> one of us has been very successful at it. But it's important. Important trait is you remain scrappy and you just stick with it. And I'm guessing that one of these generations were going to be successful.
1: <laughs> What's the name of your hometown?
0: The closest city, which is where I went to high school, the name was Declo, Idaho.
1: Are you like a hometown hero in Declo, Idaho? Go on. Tell me your picture is not somewhere in that high school somewhere.
0: <laughs> Have you tried to explain to your grandmother that you're working in virtualization? Or cloud computing, is not something that anybody really can under, understand. <laughs> not the regular person would understand what the world I
1: do. Yes. Okay, I got to ask you, uh, my curiosity is running wild. In the biggest meetings of your life, when you're interviewing with the Collison brothers, when you're interviewing with Andy and Jeff Bezos, when you have CIO meetings at Goldman Sachs, are you wearing the cowboy hat? I got it. I am. No matter what.
0: I go to Japan, you'll see me going into the meeting with the CEO of NEC with my cowboy hat on, to Paris, the CIO of Société Générale, my cowboy hat on. You'll find that happening.
1: Has there been any funny stories of people that have asked you what the hell's going on, or is it automatically an icebreaker knowing like, oh, this guy's the man? Like this. Guy, this is...
0: <laughs> well, a lot of people do ask me why I wear a cowboy hat. And I'll tell you, The one thing that I think is true about business and about life is we all need to be part of a community. And what I love about ranch life is we all still are a part of a community and we help each other. You don't even have to ask. People just show up. They know when you're working your cows and they know you'll need help. So they just show up. And your job is to show up anytime they need help, whether they ask or not. they need help, you're there. And that's what my cowboy app represents to me is that notion of community. And so I, uh, I wear it as a message that every day you got to be helping people and you got to be doing it without asking. You got to be doing it without expecting anything in return.
1: That's really cool, man. I would look so ugly in that thing. Otherwise maybe I'd give it a shot. well, Generally speaking, I get nervous before most of these interviews. That's usually a good feeling. That means I'm doing something right. And I was particularly excited, nervous, all of the emotions for this one because you're kind of a legend. I've known your name since I started my career in public cloud. I was in public cloud security in the early days when you were joining AWS. And so I've known your name since then. And it's gonna be odd because when you look at someone like yours's resume, you were very early at VMware, very early at AWS, and now at Stripe. I kind of want to talk about the things that didn't go great along the way, because I think that's honestly a lot more relatable than the rises that you've had at some of these companies. And so maybe before we get into that, I'd love to ask you, like, why'd you jump from engineering to finance in the early days?
0: So I came from a long line of entrepreneurs, and small-time farmers really are just entrepreneurs. And I've had some parts of the family that have been bankrupt and other parts of the family that have done really well. And so I always thought I was gonna be an entrepreneur. I thought I was gonna be a startup person. And I wanted to have a good engineering background so that I could do a good job of solving problems. But I also wanted to be able to run the business. And that's the reason I went from engineering Mm -hmm. to finance.
1: Makes sense. You joined IBM in 87. When you joined, was this all-time high stock price? Was this IBM?
0: Most profitable company in the history of the world.
1: In 87 when you joined? In
0: 87. The most profitable company in the history of the world in 87 when I joined.
1: How good were you feeling when you joined that company? I
0: was excited about getting that offer from IBM. There was a long history, including people like Ross Perot, that spent six or seven years at IBM, really learned a lot about how to do really good customer interaction and then went out and started their businesses and were unbelievably successful. And so I was delighted to get a chance to start at IBM and kind of follow that journey, if you will.
1: Okay. So you started in 87, how long before the precipitous fall of IBM began in your tenure there? (laughs)
0: So I went from Akers, who ran the most profitable company in the world, to Gershner, who had to recover the least profitable company in the world. And so under Gershner, I was the first line manager. And I was the first one that really that our first line community was the first one to ever take any employee reductions in the company's history. And so I had to call in these people that had been at the company 25, 30 years and tell them that they didn't have a job anymore. And was a real experience for kind of a first time leader. Uh, So I was 26, 27 at the time. And all of these folks were 55 and 60. And many of them hadn't been in the IBM office for a decade. They were really out with their customers. And you call them into the office and Ask them to leave their badge and their credit cards on the table, and it was a learning experience, that's for sure.
1: Can I tell you a not the same but somewhat similar story? In my first job, we were doing it's called bracket computing. We were doing cloud security. It was the early, early days, like when Capital One was one of the few customers, and we were trying to secure Goldman's move to the cloud. Little do we know, like they're still moving to the cloud. And so. I was running the BDR team at 22-23. The company had raised a boatload of money, didn't reach the revenue expectations that aligned to the valuation multiple that we got. Long story short, when you don't have product market fit and you're trying to set meetings, it doesn't work very well because, well, you don't have product market fit, your message isn't resonating. So I had a team of BDRs, one of whom she had a family and kids, and we had to lay off everyone but one person. And they said, Jubin, can you do it? And I didn't know what to do. And my boss had to basically take over. And it was the first time at a young age that I realized, like, this is not just a job and this is not a joke. Like, this is pretty serious. And this woman has kids and I'm basically a kid. That's when the line started really blurring for me. It is hard. And that was a good lesson early on of I don't want to experience this. It's a shitty feeling when you got into that territory. I heard you say that it hadn't hit its number in seven years. And when you rolled in there, it was at 20% of plan. Is that Yeah,
0: forecasting being 40% at the end of the year. I rolled in with seven months to go. So I rolled in in May and a team of 10. And then I got the opportunity to let 80% of the team go. Why'd you take the job? There was no sign that we were ever going to do this. So I had taken the job in May. Everything seemed to be going along just fine. And then I think it was September, three months in, that, okay, here's the next part of your job. And we're going to give you two more territories. But that was manufacturing. Then they ended up giving me transportation and consumer goods. But first thing you got to do is clean this one up. Then we're going to give you these two others to go clean up as well. And so it was interesting for sure. It was the first time that I realized that, you know, sometimes you really Mm. need a new frame to create success. So it really was like, all right, how do I kind of rewrite the way I think about selling? And I always start with a customer every time I consider change. I said, what can we do to help our customers understand our solutions better. And I came up with this notion of a manufacturing plant. And selling is like a manufacturing plant. You have capacity, you have quality that you have to manage, you have to manage throughput, you have to manage velocity. It really is a lot like a manufacturing plant. I use that notion and the idea of mass customizing for your manufacturing for your customer. And I came up with a way to fundamentally break apart the selling process, specialize and automate each part of the process. And the result of all of that was that team the next year hit 140% of plan the first time in eight years that they'd made plan. And they blew it out, just the two of them. I didn't put more resources into that territory. I gave all of those accounts to the same two people and we gave them a year-on-year growth, and they blew it out.
1: Turning that thing around as a first-time manager in that specific circumstance, how much mojo, how much confidence did that give you, knowing that you were thrown into the deep end and that you could make it to the other side?
0: It gives you a lot of confidence, but more importantly, it gives you a frame. I now manage businesses and manage change based off first principles, and so, Every time I go through change, I rewind back to first principles. And every time I come into a new company, I, I oftentimes am asked, well, do you just take the same playbook to a new company? And I'd, I'd answer it, do pro football coaches take the same plays to every game? You know, it doesn't work that way. You can't do it that way. Begin with first principles. Begin with understanding the characteristics of your team and the characteristics of your customers and then figure out what plays will work in those two contexts. And so I don't take the same plays. This is now the sixth tornado. I call these hyper growth companies tornadoes. This is the sixth one that I've been in and I have never taken the same playbook into any of them. And by the way, If you're not gonna use the same plays, you're not gonna use the same personnel. Another question people always ask is, well, aren't you just taking the same people from company to company? I'm like, nope, it's about building the right team and then getting the right plays and managing the right execution. And I'm lucky here at Stripe, we're an execution machine. And that happened before I got here. Unbelievably successful execution machine that is really user-centric and now all you have to do is bring a few more plays to take it to the next level.
1: What are the qualities of a tornado?
0: First thing about a tornado is you're building something that's never been built before. So you can't rely on the rearview mirror to see the future. And so you have to experiment and use customer anecdotes to predict the future rather than use historical charts and linear regressions. So you really have to be a builder and an inventor. If you're really going to do something unique, you're going to be wrong once in a while. So you're going to be willing to be wrong. Anything that is really unique is never obvious. And so you're never going to get it right every time. So you got to be a builder, but you also have to recognize that risk means great reward, but you got to do it right. And then you've got to be really first principle-based And everything has to start with the customer.
1: If someone's interviewing for your team, if you don't care about the playbook that they've run before, and you are more interested in the way that they think about things, and maybe you could couch that in first principles, how do you scratch at that? How do you uncover that first principle mindset in somebody that you're trying to recruit or that's interviewing with you?
0: So let me tell you how I think about teasing out great, people for the go-to-market. Yeah. You got to find people that like to change because the the thing about sales is there's a Darwinism about sales. If you're not evolving, everybody else is evolving around you and you're going to go the way of the dinosaurs. And so you have to be willing to change every day. But that change has to be first principle-based and you got to change in the right way. And so I always watch for my team and their experience around changing, not their experience around the company they worked for before. That's one thing. The second thing is having the right characteristics is absolutely critical. And so to be really successful as a seller, I've come to know that you've got to have an innate curiosity. Curiosity, probably one of the most important characteristics of a seller, because what it does is it helps them ask that next question of the customer that uncovers the big problems of the customer. If you don't have an innate curiosity, you're not going to be asking enough questions to really know deeply your customer. And the more curious you are, the deeper you'll know your customer. And that's disproportionately important in the fullness of time.
1: So... I'm going to skip over the VMware part just for time's sake, even though that's an episode in itself. You joined Amazon in 2013. It was doing about $1.8 billion of revenue when you joined. When you left, it was doing about $43 billion. I can't say that without smiling. When you started, there was about 350 people in the org. When you left, there was about 22,000 people that worked for you. Do you know a woman named Carol Potts, by chance? I know Carol very well. I love Carol. So, Carol... When I was younger in my career, I had folks that I would admire, that I would search for on LinkedIn, and she was one of them. And I sent her a cold email and it basically just said, Hey, Carol, I don't know you. I've never met you, but I just really admire your career path. And I'd love the opportunity as I go up in my career to learn a little bit from you. So anyway, Carol and I have stayed friends since that point. She showed the note to her kids. And every time I'm in the South Bay near the office, I always go stop by and, and say hi to Carol. Awesome. <laughs> She's she great. great. She's great. I remember the early days of Amazon. I really do. I remember the early days of the public cloud. I joined that world one year after you. It wasn't always that easy, was it? Like it was real obvious to you and me and to a lot of the early customers. But I remember most of my conversations in 2014 and you joined in 2013 were either we're never moving anything to the public cloud or maybe we'll put our marketing website on The public cloud. Did you experience similar conversations? Absolutely. The exact same conversations. Like, it's not safe enough. I can't control
0: it. This is real business. That public cloud is just kind of a
1: pretend technology. All all of those. You reported to Andy Jassy, right? He was the CEO of AWS, now the CEO of all of Amazon. When you two would listen to that and put your heads together on how the heck... Are we crazy or who's crazy here? Because I feel a lot of conviction that we are right. We're going to be on the right side of history. What were some of the times where you hire reps, right? I imagine you hire a team, you sell them on the opportunity. Then they go into Morgan Stanley or they go into one of these accounts and they say, we're never getting on the public cloud. How did you and Andy keep the ship moving in the right direction and make sure that the conviction that you felt permeated to the team, which then ultimately would hopefully permeate to the customer.
0: In every company I've been at, all the big tornado companies, it was about figuring out how to sway the largest enterprises in the world to a new type of technology that they weren't yet convinced was going to be relevant to them. So Tivoli was that way, BEA Systems was that way, VMware was that way, and AWS, it was that way. So I break it down to, again, what are the first principles? Well, the first principle of getting some a customer to believe is proof. So what are the proof points? Well, you can have multiple proof points. You can prove it to them through a demo. You can prove it to them through one of their peers that have already done it. You can prove it through a third-party validation like a, an analyst. And so you break it down... And you begin to talk to them about these proof points. Let me tell you why your current framing of IT infrastructure can be improved. Let me tell you about what your competitors are doing. Let me tell you about how I can fundamentally change the outcomes you're seeking. And let me tell you what the analysts are saying about it, All right? And then let me reference a peer of yours. So you always you break those pieces down into their, basically those four playbooks that I run to get the executives confidence that this is indeed a technology that they should and can leverage. And so that's what I did. Now, you also know that you need to have some lighthouses. And so I intentionally chose lighthouses. And I deeply engaged with those lighthouses to make sure we got them where we wanted them to go, which is a, a point that they could be very successful with our technology, and I chose General Electric, GE, and I chose Capital One. And I deeply invested with them, helped them really understand the business value, went through all four proof points. And out of that, one of the biggest turning points in AWS's history is when I had the CIO of GE stand up in front of the audience at Reinvent and say, They're going all into the public cloud because they can move faster and save money. And in that same event, I had the CIO of Capital One stand up on stage and say they're going to the public cloud because they can be more secure there. And that was what I was seeking. I wanted to really invest in those two lighthouses to prove to the rest of the industry that they can go there. Now, you have those CIOs say that. Not only does it sway the industry, but it sways your sales organization. They get it. They're like, well, if if they're going there, all of my customers should go there too.
1: I was at that reInvent. It was Uh, fun, wasn't it? Yeah, well, they all are. I remember when it was not what it is today. Those are small, small numbers back then. Oh, I have so many questions on this one. So when you say you deeply invest in the lighthouses, qualify that for me. What does that mean when you deeply invest in GE? What do you do? I intentionally
0: build a relationship with the senior most executive, and I make sure that we do the right level of engagement across the company. And we help them problem solve, right? This is really about change management. In a lot of ways, almost all new technology adoption is about change management for CIOs. You'll find it's very interesting. The developers change quickly. They see a new thing that they think is cool. that can help them build stuff. They move immediately. The CIOs and CEOs get it as well, but there's this frozen middle. And in the frozen middle is where the adoption of technology generally slows. And so your job is to help be a change agent for the CFOs and CEOs. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm helping support getting 42 CTOs in a room and helping Jamie Miller with that change management helping sway the whole organization into believing they could and same thing bringing the right executive commitment Rob Alexander we went out to Capital One and we he brought in his top 200 executives and we had Andy on stage in a fireside ch- chat with Rob about what the cloud could mean to Capital One. That's the level of investment you need to make to make these key lighthouses really understand the value. A lot of reps think, oh, we'll make an investment by giving it away for free. That's not gonna help. If you can't prove the value, you've got the wrong selling motion. You need to prove the value. What you're really doing is helping those executives with change management.
1: On the change management side, I'm frustrated because I want another hour and a half. On the change management side, how much do you think about change management externally and internally? Don't you think as much of your job is helping change management with the Lighthouse customers as it is with change management in these firecracker companies that you're working for? More.
0: It's really about change management of your customers than anything else. You can change internally because you have way more control. By getting the middle managers at Barclays to change from your position as a cro that's a challenge and so it's a very fun challenge but it's a challenge
1: okay stripe you joined stripe about a year year and a half ago and i'll just frame up a couple things and then maybe you could tell the audience what stripe does in 20 30 seconds they're going to be a contender to be one of the world's most valuable startups by the time it goes public that's not a secret it was founded in 2010 by patrick and john collison stripe processes like hundreds of billions of dollars in transactions for businesses what does Stripe do?
0: Look, Stripe and AWS have a lot of similarities. AWS is democratizing IT infrastructure, whereas Stripe is reinventing the way businesses optimize their global money management in today's internet economy. Basically, the same thing, optimizing global financial infrastructure, democratizing global commerce, right? So it think about it, businesses are seeing how important it is to transform digitally. And by the way, COVID has dropped, kicked us all into the next decade. Imagine two years ago, if somebody would have come up to you and said, you know what, I'm going to have every grandmother in the world buying groceries online within 12 months. You would have said, what? That? No, that's not possible. Not Not grandma, grandma's not gonna buy stuff online, (laughs) right? And bam, here we are, 18 months later, and everybody's buying stuff online. Think about that. And so companies today to be successful have to adopt that behavioral change that has been made. And we've changed behaviors, we're now digital, way more digital than we've ever been before, and we're not going back. I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed door dashing. Cool new restaurants that I would never have spent my time driving over to because I can do it from my couch with my boots off. It's like, oh, this is awesome! <laughs> I found so many new restaurants that I love only because <laughs> DoorDash. Who would have guessed? So we help those companies come online. Look, this is a historic time where, in order for companies to be able to really compete, they've got to be really good at their e-commerce and their online shopping experience and we facilitate those transactions and allow our customers to be able to really get to know their customers much better
1: mike this is the hottest company in the world right now i mean maybe i'm living in my own little silicon valley bubble but like this thing is absolutely this is the real deal and that's putting it lightly You have walked into the company that's been at the height of its power. I'm not saying that here, but do you ever have battle scars? Or even I just imagine being in your shoes or maybe your boots and walking into this company and just being like, they never had a CRO before. It's been product led up until this point. You can't do better as a company than what they've done until this point. Do you ever get nervous about the expectations? Like, oh my goodness, what am I walking into? I tell you the way I think about it, I bring it back to. Of the customer,
0: and by the way, you know AWS is pretty successful. When I started, they had been doubling in revenue from zero to a billion eight, and that's not too bad in just a few short years. But I've always bringing back to the customer. I'm like, how can I help these businesses transform? I don't worry about the business I'm walking into. I worry about our customers. And I looked at Stripe and I said, Stripe has sophisticated technology that will allow for everything from better customer engagement to payment optimizations. Things like what Amazon and Salesforce and Lassian all of these guys wanted to do, we have the technology to do it. So all I have to do is make those customers successful and the business will take care of itself. So when I walk in, I don't worry too much about the success to date of the company, I worry about how can I improve how we're delivering on behalf of our customers? And that just gives you an, another gear as a company. And by the way, what was true about AWS and Stripe is that the opportunity is substantial in the enterprise space. We can help enterprises grow in dramatic ways and we're gonna prove it to them over the next few years. Look. 14% of all transactions are online today, leaving 86% to come online in the next few years. And it will come online. We all have changed our behavior. Most of that is in the enterprise space, and we've got great solutions to help them come online.
1: When you were evaluating the opportunity, and I know I think Stripe was an AWS customer, you started to get to know the Carlson brothers, John and Patrick. Were there any similarities or differences that you saw in the brothers? versus Andy and Jeff? Anything that you thought, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this glimmer in their eye. Oh, for sure.
0: Absolutely. If I were to compare the two, I would compare Patrick to Jeff, super deep technically, really smart technically, very thoughtful, really high IQ people, and very engaging, both of them very engaging. And so I was like, wow, that's a lot like Jeff. And then John has many of the exact same characteristics as Andy, really holds a high bar, really talented at marketing. Andy's one of the best marketing people I've ever met in my life by a wide margin. He really, really just gets how people think about things and also very smart. And so Andy was great in front of customers. John is great in front of customers. And then the go to market in general. So uh, the two of them have a bunch of similarities between Jeff and
1: Andy. Ezra Klein, who's a reporter, asked Patrick Collison one time, which working CEO he admires the most. Okay. Have you heard this? Do you know what I'm talking about? You have a smile. No, on your face. I didn't, no, I I didn't okay. hear this. <laughs> okay. So he asked him, which working CEO, Patrick, do you admire the most? And Patrick said, the way in which Bezos, has persistently and continuously been able to use time horizons as a competitive advantage is something that I have deep respect for. There's something quite deep in the notion of using time horizons as a competitive advantage and that you're simply willing to wait longer than most people and you have an organization that is thusly oriented. You know both those guys pretty well. What do you think of that?
0: It really is a brilliant thing that Jeff did he really does believe that something truly innovative, truly pioneering will not be obvious. And if it's not going to be obvious, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be done quickly. And so if you're really going to be truly innovative, you've got to be willing to wait longer than most people would wait to get an outcome. And that is one of the secret sauces of Amazon. I've been in now six highly innovative companies, and Amazon retained its innovation model longer than any of them. And part of the reason is because they're willing to, as Jeff called it, I'm willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time. And That idea of being willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time matters a lot. If you're gonna do things that really are meaningful for your customers. The second thing that matters, that that is kind of the secret sauce that Jeff has that I I really like is the notion that you should fail. If you're not failing, you're not inventing. If you go back to the notion that anything truly innovative is not gonna be obvious, Well, if you're not failing, then you're not really innovating. And so it's okay to fail. What's important, though, is to quickly recognize when you're off course and course correct. Iterating on the business is disproportionately important. In fact, what I love about Amazon is the way they build products is just different. And we're doing the same thing here at Stripe. The product development starts when the product is released. That's when you really begin to pick up the pace of product development. Whereas most companies have this model that says, I'll go invent something, and I'll have a general availability, and the product's done. And that's just the wrong way to build products if you're going to truly be innovative.
1: On the first point about being misunderstood, having a tolerance for misunderstanding for quite a while, how does that jive in your world? You don't have the privilege of being misunderstood for more than two quarters. Otherwise you're gonna be misunderstood right out the door. So how do you balance that?
0: (laughs) Well, so you have to be willing to be misunderstood. And so you're doing things for the customer that they may not value today, but in the fullness of time, they'll recognize the value. And that's the way you should be thinking about it. You're doing things that most companies wouldn't, but in the fullness of time, it'll matter. So I'll give you an example of how that shows up. One of the things that probably is most prevalent as a negative in software sales is the notion of shelfware. And how do you get, end up with shelfware? The challenge with Shelfware is you as a supplier have gotten economic value from something that the customer never receives the value from. That's not a strategy that will work long term. And so how do you line up sales compensation in a way that aligns the company's longer term together, where you're ensuring that your customer gets economic value when you do? And so one of the things that I did at AWS and we've done here at Stripe is the companies I work with, I explain to them like, we don't have this thing called an enterprise license agreement where we're the bad friend that shows up once every three years and takes you out to golf and asks you to sign up for some more revenue. What we do is every day we get up and every hour you can fire us. And so we have to be the best for you every hour. Now, why is that so innovative or important, well, in the fullness of time, it'll matter. In the fullness of time, our companies will become much more strategic together because I get economic value when you get economic value. And, and the way we price at Stripe is deeply aligned with this so that I only get paid when you do a transaction. If you don't do a transaction, I don't get paid. So we're, we're tightly coupled. The fact that we're misunderstood there and that what we're really doing is building long-term strategic partnerships, it's okay, I'm okay if the customers don't understand that what that's really doing is investing forward for longer-term partnerships. But in the fullness of time, they'll recognize, wow, that was really meaningful. That kept our two teams and our two companies very well aligned.
1: But technically speaking, and I understand the alignment there, if you're a customer, you could still prepay for a set of future consumption licenses. It is a consumption-based model, but you could tokenize a future consumption upfront and get a discount for that. You
0: could, if you wanted to do that, or you don't have to. Totally. But then the bargain is, do I like the discount versus the risk? Have I got the right consumption? Then the goal is how do I make sure that, you know, I always think about these things in confidence intervals, right? I want to be 95% confident that the volume I commit to I'll use, or maybe I want to be 99%, but that's a bargain back in the hands of the customer where they get to decide their confidence level and they'd get to trade that off against the discount that they
1: might receive. Totally. You haven't used your Twitter in quite some time, but in 2011, you tweeted something along the lines of how much you love prospecting. And you were an executive at Amazon or VMware at the time? VMware. VMware. At the time, yeah. You were like a pretty senior exec at VMware tweeting yeah. about how much you love prospecting. I've heard you refer to prospecting as the calisthenics of sales. Can you explain that?
0: Yeah. Well, look, selling is a muscle memory sport. You don't expect somebody to pick up a golf club for the first time and go out on the PGA tour. They'd never be able to do that. You can't do that. It's impossible. You have to practice a lot to get to be the best and you have to practice every day, and it's gotta be well thought out, well-rounded practice. And it's the same thing with selling. Selling is a muscle memory sport. You learn how to sell, you learn strategies of selling, you learn methodologies of selling, you learn how to dovetail questioning and selling together. You learn how to leverage validation points throughout your cycle, just to kind of drive it home, I always say, look, if you got 10 prospects in the morning when you come in, 90% of the people will work those prospects the wrong way. 90% of the people will, when they first get to the phone, go, I want to sell something today. All right, which of these prospects is the best prospects? I'm going to call them first. And that's just the absolute wrong thing to do. That's like, going out on tour and never warming up at the practice range before you tee off. That's just the wrong thing to do. What you do is the person that you're least likely to sell to, that's when you call first. And the most likely sell is the very last one you make because you'll be warmed up. Your body will be warmed up. You're ready with your stories. You know how you're going to run the call because you've now done it nine times in the last hour and you're going to execute really well by doing it that way. In particular, it's true in prospecting. And in prospecting, a lot like a sport, the first stage of prospecting is targeting what company is most likely to buy. People don't spend nearly enough time thinking about who's most likely to like the use case that I am going to sell today. It's like not worrying about the kind of clubs you're going to use. If you're a golfer, you'd never do that. you Make sure you really know the clubs. And as a prospector, you got to really know what use case you're selling and the customers that will really like that use case, not only the companies, but the profile in the company that you've got to address, right? And so that notion of targeting is critical. And then once you target well, you recognize that, look, if you get them on the phone or in email engaged, that First contact is what I call meaningful interaction. You've got to make it really meaningful, meaning when you swing for that golf ball, you've got to make contact. And you know when you make contact when you're playing golf or tennis or whatever. And you know when you make contact when you're, you're selling too. And you get to get good at making that contact, right? It is a fun, exciting, challenging thing to do.
1: So I remember, just make a finer point on your story, when I was a BDR, I started my career as a, a cold caller, and my boss said, "Jubin, stop selling the product. You don't sell the product. You're selling a meeting. That's it. You're selling a meeting. That's it. Get off the phone. Get off the phone. You get paid for meetings. You don't get commissions for the revenue that you're going to ju- You get paid for meetings. Sell the meeting. Get off the phone.
0: So true. By the way, that's the best way to start a sales career. I mean, if you're not selling knives, you could sell knives door to door. That's another way to start a sales career.
1: But picking up the phone and being able to call somebody that doesn't want to talk to you is the most important skill that I ever learned. And I don't even know if it's the skill or the humility that I learned at an early part of my career. I learned how hard this job is. I learned a deep appreciation for this career, and what it means to actually do this career. People think this is like easy and hunky-dory. That reminds me of the entry-level classes in college that they by design make really hard so that they wean out the week to not make it all the way through.
0: (laughs) Very true, very true. Mike, do
1: you still prospect?
0: Every day, every day, multiple times a day. I will call somebody, I'll send them emails. I'll ask somebody to reference me someplace every day, multiple times. A give day. me an
1: example. What was the last time you prospected? What did you do?
0: I was prospecting this morning. I'll give you an example of the importance of prospecting. So when I first got to AWS, I'm going to not give the, out the names of the companies or the people involved, but I'll give you a, Example of how impactful it can be. So one of the things I wanted to do when I got there is is I wanted to get some really big enterprise customers going. And there was in a large multinational, one of the largest multinational media companies, there was a CIO that was publicly vocal about how public cloud didn't make any sense at all. Just publicly vocal in many, many different forums.
1: It was his thing.
0: It was her thing, but yeah. It was her thing. Yes. And so I said, you know what? That's a perfect place to prospect. So I told my team, hey, I wanna go ask this lady for a meeting. And the team's like, oh no, let's don't do that. I mean, you don't wanna engage her because she's vocal about how this solution is not something that any enterprise (laughs) ever should be (laughs) using. And I'm like, That's the perfect person to prospect. Are you kidding me? That's a perfect person to prospect. But two emails about strong validation points. I'm requesting a meeting just for me. And it's just, hey, I'd like to meet with you. Two emails later, she responds. Okay, you know what? I will meet with you. And it took a while, but a few years later, they ended up being one of the larger customers of AWS. And it all started with prospecting and it all started with creating that meaningful dialogue. And that happens to me. Hopefully if I'm doing my job three or four times every day, I get a chance to reach out to somebody new to try to create a meaningful dialogue.
1: By the way, it's amazing because of your job. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest because I've probably heard every piece of media and content you've ever written or speak to or on or whatever. And one of the things that struck me was your ability to be strategic and tactical concurrently. And it's a hallmark of what I think of as the greatest leaders. And the challenge with the tactic part of it is that if you're always managing a $80 billion business, whatever, $10 billion business, you're over here, right? your sword can get dull so quickly. Do you think about that actively when you do things like prospecting?
0: One of the things that Jeff told a customer I had brought to Seattle and just a contingent of senior executives and I had Jeff come in and talk to them. Jeff, every time I brought him into a customer, I have this thing of Jeff notes because every time I bring him in, he says something, I'm like, damn, that's smart. Yes, that's right. But- this time, what he said is they were asking him, how did you figure out the best strategy for Amazon? And his answer was, look, tactics inform strategy. You focus on the tactics, the strategy will follow. It comes back to that's the same idea, the tactics inform strategy. And you won't get a good strategy unless you're in the details of the tactics. That's the reason why it's Disproportionately important for CROs to be able to go deep on what's going on with our customers, what's going on in their organization, what are the blockers, what's slowing people down. Unless you're deep, you're not going to be able to create the right strategies to grow.
1: In those meetings where you would bring Jeff, and maybe this is exactly your point, but I've known a lot of people that bring in CEOs for QBRs. They bring in the executives of the accounts that they're working and their largest customers. And what I thought what you were going to say is when you had a list of things, I thought you were going to say that you prep the things that you didn't want Jeff to say. You know, sometimes the executive can be very pie in the sky and start going off script. I bet you never did that with Jeff because you knew he was in the tactics. And I bet people don't do that with you. Or did you?
0: No, so I have a very detailed briefing process and i've got a briefing document that i've used for years that gets to the real heart of what the customers need to address and so what you want to do is be very efficient and effective in these meetings and you can't have executives wandering. they need to know what are the three things that you need out of this meeting and what is the context behind those three things And what you should ask about these three things. And so every meeting that any executive goes into with my organization, and it's been true about all the organizations, the executives know what they're being brought in to do. I'll bring them right back on target, too. If they decide to to go off script, I'm bringing them back on script because we have shit we got to do. This is serious. This is not conversation time, chat time. These executives have taken a substantial time on their calendar to meet with us, and we gotta make it really impactful.
1: So play that forward for me. Let's assume it's one of the Patrick or John Collison, like the, the Stripe co-founders, or or Jeff. Let's assume that you have one of your largest clients. They bring their whole executive team, and it is a CEO's job to paint vision and picture, right? That is what yep. they do all day. That is their muscle memory. That is what they go to the range to practice, right? And that's a very different feel from what you want to accomplish with that meeting. How do you or maybe how have you artfully and nicely told your boss stop talking and let's go back to this part of this discussion?
0: I oftentimes will say that's very interesting. Now, let me ask you this question because I think they'd be very interested to hear from you on this topic. And the best way to do it is, is kind of put yourself in that chair of the customers and ask the CEO the questions that they would be asking. And you know what questions they're asking because you've got the briefing doc. You know the things that they came in to, to get to know. And so you can do that in an eloquent way. And sometimes you do it just for fun. You say, look, we're off topic now. And I know you guys more really wanted to hear this. So let's spend some time over there, right? You can mm-hmm. do that too. And the customers really appreciate it. Your CEO, when they see how well the customers appreciate the focus on them, the CEOs or a good CEO is like, oh yeah, absolutely. Let's get back to the things that matter to you, Mr. or Miss Customer.
1: There was some profile written about you and it was I'll butcher it, but it was a quote that you live by or a quote that you like. And the quote was early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Tell me about that. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) I don't know. That's something my grandfather used to tell me. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But it's just the way on the farm. That's what you do on the farm. You get up early. You work all day. You're not going to be out until one o'clock in the morning because you got to get up early again. And so I live that early to bed, early to rise.
1: Do you practice that ethos off the farm in Seattle?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Still today. That's the way you do it. Look, it gets back to a professional athlete. There aren't a bunch of professional athletes that are out partying until three o'clock in the morning before they go to play football. And those that are, won't last very long. Right, But the Brady's of the world, they're not doing it that way. They're living by early to bed, early to rise is what allows me to continue to throw the dang ball so quickly when I'm 44 and beat the Cowboys in the first game of the NFL season last night.
1: What time are you waking up?
0: I generally get up between 5.30 and 6, and I generally work out at 5.30 for an hour to an hour and a half and then get to work at 7.
1: Can I ask you a really weird question? Sure. Well, I'm going to do it anyway, so I appreciate it. You don't have to answer. What do you look forward to most in a day? When you wake up, what are you most excited about?
0: So I was a runner for many, many years, and I still run. But 9 out of the 10 best ideas I've had in my life is when I've been out running. It's the time where you just process all of the signals that you've heard going all the way back, but the more recent signals have have more fidelity. And my wife will tell you this is true. It's the time that I work out because that's when I get a chance to really process what signals I've heard and what they mean.
1: Hmm. There's a million things that I've heard you say that I, well, I listen to them and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I need more. I need to know everything he means by that. So you have a framework around decision-making and you say that decisions aren't all the same, basically. And the way that you articulate it is that there's one-way doors and two-way doors. Tell me about the way you think about decisions.
0: Look, there really are two types of decisions you have to make every day. There are those that you can reverse and there are those that you can't reverse. And I use the term one-way door, two-way door. At Stripe, I use... A similar kind of metaphor. And if you're going to operate at speed, what you need is for decisions that you can reverse, you need to make them very quickly. If speed matters, and in the world these days, speed disproportionately matters. And so being able to make decisions with speed is very helpful. And so the way you make the best possible decisions with the right speed is categorize your decision is this something that I can reverse or not and if it is something you can reverse getting in the rhythm of making the decision quickly matters now the average person feels comfortable making a decision with about 90 percent of the information so what I try to teach the teams to do is make the decision with 70 percent of the information So if you made the decision, you're comfortable with the decision you made, you took too long to make it. You should be uncomfortable with it. And so somebody makes a decision, I'm asking, well, how comfortable are you with that decision? And they say, well, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm like, well, you took way too long to make it then. Right, and now the reason why that matters disproportionately is because if you're uncomfortable with a decision, the first thing you're gonna look for, the very first thing that you're gonna look for is signals that you're wrong because you're not sure you're right. So naturally you'll be seeking out any signal that says that you need to adjust your decision. Whereas if you take more time and get 90% right, the first thing you do is when you get a signal, you're like, no, I think I was right. Then it takes you too long to iterate. So the way you get quick at making the decision but also increase the pace of your business is you make decisions with 70% of the information forces you to be looking for signals early that allows you to iterate faster. And as a result, your business agility increases. So doing that with every decision is a bad idea, a really bad idea, because there are decisions that you can't undo. And if you make them without the right depth of knowledge and understanding, it can really screw up your business. So for decisions that you can't undo, you know, the old firefighter's motto is the way to go. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. For those decisions, you go deep and you really understand them and you make sure you get it right. What most people do is take the same amount of time with every decision. That is not an effective way to make decisions, but it's also a disproportionately slow way to make a decision and it slows the speed of your business as well because you're not iterating as fast.
1: What are the tells internally? What does it feel like in your gut when you get to 70%? Because the problem is, I imagine you don't know when you're at those different data thresholds. Does the question make sense? Like, how do do you know? Of course. So what
0: you wanna do is you wanna be thinking about the signals that you have and how strong and what the fidelity of the signal is. So let's say it slightly differently. There are two ways that you get signals. One way you get signal is experimentation. Right. And by the way, if you're doing something truly innovative, like like you do when you're in the tornado, like we are at Stripe, you can't use the rearview mirror to see forward. It won't show you forward because nobody has ever fundamentally rebuilt the global financial infrastructure. Nobody's done that. So you can't use the past to predict the future. So what you have to do is you have to experiment or you have to use customer anecdotes. And you use those to determine whether you're ready to make a decision. So I always have this, again, this idea of confidence levels, 70% confident, 80% confident, 90% confident, 95% confident, 99% confident. And so I always integrate that into the decision, you know, am I 70% confident right now? Okay, let's go. But if you're going to do that, by the way, You can't execute that without having what we talked about a moment ago, which is it's okay to fail. Yep. It's okay to fail. And if you've got people that are worried about failing, they're never going to do 70% because you're going to fail from time to time.
1: Mike, how many one-way door decisions do you think you make in a given year?
0: Oh, a lot. The question is, how many would I make in a week? I'd make a couple in a week.
1: One-way door decisions.
0: Yeah. They're super important. And you got to be able to go deep on them. Look, you're going deep on them and it's going to take you a while to get to them. And so you're probably working on 10 at a time.
1: What is your expected value of a win rate with those decisions? Do you expect 100%? Well,
0: there's no such thing as 100%, but a really high, 99%. You got to be right. You got to be right. You really have to be right.
1: Can you give me an example of a one-way door decision that is seared in your head as one just, I don't know, one that you're like, this was a big one. Like this was a big one and I'm sure glad I got it right. Or if you want, you could give me another one that's like, I actually screwed this one up.
0: Well, so when I first got to AWS, what we hadn't done is really focused on the enterprise. And so the one-way door I made there was, I said, I'm going to separate all of our customers out, I'm going to create an entirely new enterprise segment, and I'm going to staff that segment with hundreds of people. And there was no enterprises weren't really using AWS at the time. In the fullness of time, you could fire all those people and go hire different if it was wrong. I mean, you could do that, but you really can't undo that type of a big investment in your sales force. And I made the same decisions here. So anything that impacts the morale of your sales force can be one-way decisions. Because while you can change morale, it takes too long and you lose too much when you're changing morale. The other big one-way decisions are around culture in your sales force. What do you expect from your sales force relative to culture, right? and getting the culture right from the beginning matters.
1: Are there any one-way decisions that you wish you had back? Two-part question, are there any what you thought were two-way doors that ended up being one-way doors?
0: All of those are true, yes to all of those, Mm -hmm. uh, because the world is just not that simple. Yeah, I love frameworks, I love pattern matching, that's what I love to do, but you're not omnipotent, And so you only see what you see, and as a result, you're gonna be wrong. I've reorganized my sales forces in ways that weren't as productive as maybe they could have been, or I've allowed it to remain less productive than it should have been just because it was painful. For example, I have entered organizations where your technical team was disconnected from your sellers. And I've allowed that to stay that way just because it had always been that way when I knew that for the customer it would be better if the sellers and the technical teams were more deeply aligned. And then then I've done it the opposite way too. I've taken too long to functionalize uh, organizations as well. It's just taken too long to do it. When you're growing quickly, it's disproportionately important to have Centralized leadership of high-growth organizations, so that you get super consistent execution. And it's only with consistent execution that you can iterate and improve, and you can scale. Yeah. And so I've taken too long, and then I've not taken enough
1: time in some places. Can you tell me about the Clayville Foundation?
0: Yeah. So I lost my first wife to cancer, and. My kids were 8, 10, and 12, and I spent every other week for 19 months sleeping on the floor in a hospital as she was going through treatment, and I just said, you know what? People shouldn't have to go through this, and I'm going to do what I can. I spend a little time every week trying to help really smart people cure cancer, and that's what the Clayville Foundation is about. Now, I'm... uh, a technologist. So the Clayville Foundation is really focused on things like big data sequencing. We're focused on virally initiated cancers that would have been initiated with a pathogen or a virus, which I believe was true about my wife, even though uh, there was very little research on it. So I fund really smart scientists that are trying to get really important things done. It's amazing that we don't have enough science yet in healthcare. And those real deep scientists struggle to get the resources they need to make the insights that we need as humankind. And so I try to do that. One of the fun things I, I do is I bring technologists together with scientists to help the scientists understand or get access to technology that they otherwise wouldn't have. It's amazing, a lot of our real smart scientists are spending too much time trying to configure compute or storage or networks instead of figuring out the underlying causes of cancer, as an example.
1: Do you mind if I ask a few more questions on this? Yeah, sure. I think you've probably tweeted more, no more than 10 times, and in August of 2011, which is around the time that I believe you started the Clayville Foundation, you said you have not seen a big time fight until you have been ringside in a cancer fight. It's true. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, so people that are dealing with cancer, it's incredible the fortitude that they have, the people helping them, incredible, right? So I think probably the role that I, I'm most in awe of are oncological nurses. This is the ringside coach of these people that are in in the battle against cancer and the coaches are there 24 by 7. When cancer's got the patient down, they're the ones out there helping them get back up. The oncologists themselves, you know, putting their entire life into helping others on this journey that in many cases ends with a less than positive outcome you know, these people that are doing this are committing their lives to an unbelievable fight for patients. And the patients going through this journey that they go on, cancer as as well as many other diseases are, are an incredible roller coaster of success and failure. And following them on that roller coaster is watching them take that on. It's just, they really are in the fight of their lives
1: a lot of people want the coat of armor that hardship can give you they want that resilience and, and grit and don't understand that it's forged through fire it's okay like your kids were seven nine and eleven and you were a dad yeah what did that teach you what did that teach them what perspective does that give you
0: One thing it did do is if you go back, I seldom wore my cowboy hat before that time. And I always wore it afterwards because what my cowboy hat represents is in the ranching community, the ranchers all ranch as a community, right? The ranchers are there whenever you need help. All of your your neighbors are showing up to help. Anytime you need help, you show up to help them help. It's a real community that all works together. And you don't have to ask them. They'll show up. They know you need the help. They're going to show up. You don't have to ask. And that's the way I found the journey through cancer. The people that are are there to help, they know how desperate you are at, at points in time. And they're dedicating their lives to helping you on this journey. They're a larger community there of helping you on that part of your journey and I deeply respected what they were doing. And I, I realized that, you know what, we've got to get back to that notion of community and sales is a community, right? It's not just a rep. There's no such thing as just a rep selling. It's an SA, it's a partner, right? It's the sales ops teams, it's marketing. It's We're all a community and we have to operate like a community We all have to know when the other needs us, and we're there even before they ask. And so to me, my Cowboy app represents that notion of community, getting up every day and saying, all right, who needs me now? How can I be there for them even before they ask? That's what makes a truly great team.
1: When you were going to the hospital and leaving your kids at home and sleeping by your wife, what was going through your head? What gave you... The strength to keep on.
0: You know, I think it's probably something that's ingrained in us humans, this this notion of optimism. You know the probabilities, but you know, I'm gonna be the one in the million. My wife's gonna be the one in the million. we we're gonna do this. We're gonna get through it. We're going it's that tenaciousness. And and so that's what was going through my head. We've got to, we've got to get through this and we got to get through this successfully because, you know, the kids need a mother and we've got to figure out how to make it work. And so, you know, I did everything I, I could and Stanford did everything they could. We my wife happened to have something that a type of cancer that is what they call histologically undifferentiated, which means they have no idea what kind of cancer it is. There's not enough science in in healthcare yet. And so there's a lot for us yet to learn. And I just want to help us accelerate that learning so that other people don't have to go through this. Now, I had a great mother-in-law who was always willing to come and stay with the kids. And again, that gets back to community. And I had a great set of friends that were watching the kids do their theater production because their mom was in the hospital and their dad was helping their mom. And so you know the kids... The community was there to help us as well uh, represent us while we were away uh, for the kids.
1: Powerful note to end it on. And I I appreciate you more than you know. Leaders like you that have this level of vulnerability give others permission to do that. And that's a really special thing. So thank you. Really, thank you.
0: Well, thank you for that. It means a lot. Now, just understand that this time is worth just what you paid for it. So I'm Uh delighted to supply all this information, but I'm not sure how valuable it will be in the fullness of time, but delighted to share.
1: You have no idea. Value sometimes just hides in plain sight. I appreciate you, Mike. Thank you so, so much, man.
0: Sure. Delighted.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.